One of the key themes in my leadership work is increasing inclusion. And in this episode of Leadership Amplified, I'm delighted to be speaking with Donna Stace, Asset Management Professional at Rio Tinto and a successful and impressive gender quality advocate. Donna joined the resources industry straight from school and she gained her mechanical trade qualifications four years later. She's often been the only woman on the job within many industries that she's worked, and that includes oil and gas, construction, building maintenance, mining and rail. Now, this has thrown up many challenges for her, but they've not scared her away. In fact, Donna continues to enjoy working in these industries and is extremely passionate about women in trades. She actively advocates for and promotes trades as a viable career option for women. In 2015, Donna was awarded the Local Citizen of the Year for her volunteer work in the city of Karatha community. While a maintenance supervisor in 2019, Donna became the winner of the Outstanding Operator Technician Trade Woman for the Chamber of Minerals and Energy of Western Australia and National Women in Resources Awards. Along with being a mentor for the Women in Mining and Resources Western Australia, Donna is actively contributing to Rio Tinto's goal to grow diversity and inclusion by organising and advocating action in this area. Currently an operational specialist in a functional safety team, Donna works with a business to support management of functional safety systems. Donna, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. Okay. As is usual on Leadership Amplify, we start off with the leadership story. So tell us, you know, how you got from there uh, to here. Yeah, in, uh, well, interesting story, I guess, in the fact that I started not my leadership journey, but my career journey as a apprentice mechanical fitter and machinist a very long time ago. Uh, and then, yeah, worked all around the place. And it wasn't until I started working at Rio Tinto that I started moving into the leadership space. Uh, started with small teams which was really lovely because, you know, they're close-knit and you can really get to know your people mm -hmm. and and work really closely together and then moved back into the maintenance space and started supervising maintainers, which is a whole other story in itself, uh, being a female supervisor in that space. Uh, yeah, now I'm currently a specialist uh, but have been acting superintendent in different roles and and also uh, part of my leadership journey is around inclusion and diversity and what I've done in that space with chairing um, internal committees and being on advisory committees and, and bits and pieces like that. And then there's my non-for-profit life as well where I've chaired non-for-profit okay. organisations as well. Yeah, okay. Well, that's a fantastic summary and I'd, I'd love to unpack some of that. So starting off as an apprentice mechanical fitter and uh, machinist, how did that happen? Because it's pretty um, unusual. Yeah, well, especially back in the day too. I'll, I'll try yeah. not to let my age slip out, but <laughs> I've always just been really hands-on. I grew up in the Pilbara. Um, I was an outdoor kid. 
My father is an electrician, so I was always uh, exposed to trades mm-hmm. and living in mining towns as well. Like, so you understood the industry, I think, yeah. more through osmosis than anything else um, growing up there. And I just, it was actually in high school when you have all your subjects and I did the manual arts subjects in, you know, years seven and eight and really, really enjoyed it. So mm. decided I wanted to keep doing hands-on subjects and that fed into, well, what could I actually do with this? Uh, yeah. And that, yeah, fed into the apprenticeship and, and trying to get in an apprenticeship in town when I finished school. Yeah. And so was it easy to get an apprenticeship in that or, or was it is was it more about sort of getting the apprenticeship or was it about choosing that particular focus to be a mechanical fitter? Uh, I think in the school environment, I was the only girl doing it by the time I was in year 11 and 12. So it was working Mm. with the school, um, not to allow me to continue it, but just how, you know, how I would go in that environment. One of the main things was that the school uniform I had was a dress with like a collar tie, which is not mm-hmm. appropriate around rotating equipment. So uh, <laughs> we had to work through, you know, me getting changed into shorts and T-shirts so I could actually work on the on the tools at school. Uh, and then the school was actually great. They had a real um, vet focus uh, anyway because of where it was a Pilbara school. So... Um, I just sort of hooked on the ride. And then I think the biggest winner for me was that I actually did a lot of work experience. So I put myself out to organisations and sort of got myself a bit known um, to a few different people. And that absolutely helped when I applied for roles. And Mm. I wasn't just some name on a CV. They'd actually seen me out there and seen how I worked. And then, yeah, they were more likely to give me the apprenticeship then. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. And how did you move from that or what was the catalyst to move from that into, you know, leadership roles? Uh, I think age. I think I've been around the tracks for a while. Yeah, but really, I mean, I think a little bit of my leadership journey has been quite organic. Like I said, um, Mm -hmm. I started with little teams. So it was a bit around I had started in a role in the department where uh, we needed to resource up uh, and so mm-hmm. I was then allowed to to build a te- team around me um, yeah which was great. really great yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so that was that was a really nice way to do it and then essentially from there like I knew that I could lead teams and and the work around that um and then you know we had restructures and different bits and pieces and other opportunities came up and I jumped at them that way mm, yeah yeah and so we, we're going to talk a bit more about this kind of women working in these sorts of male dominated spaces so in terms of taking on that first leadership role as you, you know you generated I guess that first team what were the advantages or disadvantages in terms of gender or was it just not something that you even thought about at the time at that time uh a lot of the teams that I was working in and around did have um, good female participation because yeah, it was actually right. more um, admin compliance-based type of roles, which, you know, we do see um, a higher level of female participation in those mm. types of roles. 
Certainly when I moved back into maintenance, um, I was the only female supervisor. Um, there was no other female tradespeople in the team I was in. There was one in a team adjacent to us. Um, and if there was females in the workshop, it was more in that TA, um, you know, yeah. semi-skilled role. Yeah. Um, so that was quite a shift. But I really just went back to when I was an apprentice and, you know, one of the only females and it's, so it's not, it wasn't unfamiliar to me. Um, mm -hmm. And it's actually, I, I'm, I actually really love that environment. So I loved being back in it. I loved being, mm. you know, at the, at the forefront of the work we needed to do and managing the teams and, and really just getting stuck in and getting stuff done. Mm. So if people who've, been in your teams at different times were asked to talk about your leadership style and approach what would they say about you um, I've got a bit of a grin on my face at the moment yeah. uh, because I am a bit of a mother hen so I did get the nickname of mum every now and again uh, <laughs> but with but with that it was also about they knew exactly where they stood with me mm -hmm. um, I like to I like to set clear expectations of my team and they're all adults and I expect them to act like adults. Uh, but well, that's they... interesting, though, if, that, you know, if you're mum and you I expect know. them to act like adults, how does that work? Uh, I think it's because if they really need me, I'm, I'm always there for them. Right. Uh, yeah. One of my biggest philosophies is yeah. that you get to know your people so that you can be there and care is absolutely at the forefront of what I do. Um, mm -hmm. when I'm leading teams I you know I'm not I'm not friends with my teams in such that you know I don't yeah. I'm not on Facebook with them or you know I don't hang out with them and their families after hours but I absolutely know you know are they married do they have kids is there some challenges you know yeah. it's all about them what they're comfortable telling me but you know what what's going well what's not going well and then I can support them if if they need it so and I think you know that comes back in that you know I've had flowers bought for me on Mother's Day and I've had birthday cakes bought for me and stuff and I think it's just yeah. because I've managed to build an environment where the team appreciates you know what I do for them and then mm. you know they they feel like they belong in and in our little team yeah, yeah. I love that mention and focus of care because I think it's fundamental to leading and leading people no matter what environment, you know, where you are in the country doesn't make any difference. That care is absolutely critical. Um, so was that unusual at the time? How did how did people respond to that? I mean, I you know I like to talk about biases and and um, not stereotyping people, but I keep having this vision in my head <laughs> of some more tougher people in a a more rugged sort of environment. So how did that work? Yeah, look, it can absolutely be challenging when you're working in workshops in the Pilbara. It's very hot, um, a lot of manual work. You get dirty. Uh, you know, and a certain type of people are attracted to that work. So uh, I had a few questions when I began about, ah, so where'd you come from? You know, they didn't know that I had a trade background or yeah. I had worked in the industry for many years. So there was a bit of that 
well, I wonder what she's about. Um, they soon, you know, got on the bandwagon when they realised, oh, I've actually have done this before. Mm. Um, but also as well, there was a bit of that, oh, I thought we would have promoted from within or, you know, they, they obviously think there's members within their team that would be good for those positions, which is fair enough and could well be yeah. the case. Um, and I think, you know, genuinely they just want to be respected and looked after. So I think I was able to, you know, win them mm. over fairly easily. Um, mm. Mm. And I'm not I, – I do have a bit of a saying that, you know, that's my demographic. I actually really love right. those type of people. They're, you know, they're really interesting characters and they've all got amazing stories and, um, you know, there's a reason why they're there or, you know, why they're – why you know why they're doing what they're doing so um I really enjoy the banter and all that that comes with it as well so yeah I I sort of I quite enjoy that environment it's you know there's no um you don't have to speak in certain industry speak or you know and having said more that, open have, and honest yeah, yeah. you have yeah. to be respectful I'm I'm 100% on that that you know we don't say things to each other that is actually derogatory or um mm. that will harm someone but you mm. know have a good joke have a bit of fun we're at work for a really long time you might as well enjoy your day while you're there especially if you're working 12-hour shifts so mm. um so yeah I think they some of the some of them can be quite challenging, but I think if you put the time and effort in and get to know them, then you find out that they're pretty good eggs, most of them. Yeah, yep, brilliant. Okay, and so the transition into diversity and inclusion that um, you spoke to, how did that happen? I mean, in one sense, it might look completely obvious because of what you've already said in terms of your story, but not necessarily. So what was your interest in picking up the sort of mantle of diversity and inclusion? Yeah, it is an interesting one in the fact that, yes, like I've worked in this industry for such a long time and I've seen the lack of female um, participation as as one data point. But uh, I really didn't get right stuck into it until I got back into maintenance and it was a bit of a realisation that we hadn't shifted the dial as much as I thought we would have right. over the years. Mm. Um, the fact that the numbers of female tradies or, you know, female leadership in those areas had pretty much not shifted in 30 years was quite a disappointing uh, realisation yeah. to make. Yeah. So that really that really sort of charged me up to go, okay, right, we need to start doing something about this. We need to start talking about it and and pretty much start beating the drum about what we can do and talk to leadership about what they need to be aware of. So mm-hmm. that's when I did um, co-found a Women in Rail network um, to, to have access to the leadership team and to be a voice for people not just in maintenance but also across the whole division um and having worked in rail rail is a very male dominated industry from go to woe um they're now trying to do some pretty amazing things to shift that dial but i'm also a person that uh i don't like to just be a person that realizes something and doesn't try and do something about it or Mm -hmm. you know whinge about it and then not do anything about it so i get pretty proactive with that 
Um, so, yeah, so I, I just was like, right, well, if someone's going to do it, it might as well be me. And so I started really getting into it and, and yeah, getting the message out there that some things need to change and we need to actually focus. It's not going to happen naturally. It would have happened already if it was going to. We actually need to put some yeah. targeted focus on this and get it done. Yeah. So what was what was your approach to that when you co-founded the organisation and this is sort of the context, what you thought you could do with that. But how did you think you were going to make change? What did you think that that organisation would do? Yeah, it was an interesting one because to start with, it was more just, right, we need to get something together and, and see what we can do. So yeah. we tried, we actually did a lot of workshops with um, mm-hmm. people to get a sense of, you know, what they are actually chasing and what they think needed to change. So that yeah. was great. It wasn't just a couple of people with some ideas. It was actually a yeah. whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when we started pulling together the strategy on you know, what we wanted to focus on, how we wanted to make a difference. Uh, a lot of it was advisory um, because you're dealing with massive organisations that you know aren't as agile as um, smaller ones that can make those decisions. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was more formulating uh, you know, basically a, a plan on a page on what we think would benefit um, changing, right, yeah. going and talking to a lot of people um, and trying to get them to understand the issue or what they could do to help. Uh, I talked to recruitment professionals, HR professionals, um, leadership across the board, um, we ran events as well, education mm-hmm. events, knowledge events, um, to get information out to people, what people yeah. could do to be proactive in promoting themselves within the industry or within the organisation, um, and then had guest speakers and stuff come in as well to mm-hmm. uh, you know provide mm-hmm. a bit of inspiration as well. Uh, probably one of the, the best things I did with it is because I'm a firm believer that if you're going to change the doll, you actually need to change it in society. So you have to reach out to school-age children to plant seeds Mm. on what what they Mm -hmm. can do and what they might be interested in. So I had school children come to site and um, have a look at our workshop and the cool things that we've got there and the machines and everything else. And then I had teachers come out, so teachers that taught STEM, they came out and and you know, learnt about real-life scenarios with how STEM is applied in industry and got some really amazing feedback about that. So a lot of it is just about knowledge sharing and education for people so they can broaden their horizons and opinions on yeah. things and, yeah, it's cool. That's, but that sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot of things. Were you working full-time full alongside yes. of <laughs> Yes, of course, of course, of course. I mean, that's huge. So what would you say were the kind of key outcomes that you achieve through Women in Rail? Uh, there's certainly some programs running within the business that are, that were um, sort of pitched by the Women in Rail team and still continuing to today, which is fabulous. So work experience programs with kids from schools, yeah. um, particularly targeted ones for um, Indigenous kids, um, supporting the foundations that we have around the place in in getting the kids exposed to the industry. 
uh, and building those relationships. Um, on the flip side, I was involved in a project that brought vacation care to the Pilbara to Right. Um, yeah. ass- assist with, you know, childcare over school holidays, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's still running today, supported by the business. Um, what else? Yeah, just stuff like that. Well, yeah, <laughs> just just minor stuff like that. That all sounds um, absolutely amazing. So <laughs> congratulations. What's happened in terms of numbers of, say, female um, uh, students wanting to get into trades, apprenticeships, etc. Uh, we've got a pretty good success story there, actually. So I used mm. to work pretty closely with the trades training team, or they're called um, Future Skills Team now, within our organisation, and a big focus was put on um, graduate and apprentice numbers. Yeah. Um, ha- how we can make sure we're getting participation in that space. And mm. for the last couple of years, we've essentially, I, w- I won't say that it's 50-50, but it's very close to um, having parity across yeah, yeah, our recruitment there. So that's great in the fact that if we can get them through an apprenticeship, we can hopefully keep them after that. And then that will increase yeah. our trades numbers across the business. But um, yeah, a lot of work's been done around uh, actually pitching it that absolutely you can come and do this with our organisation, um, mature age as well as school yeah. leavers. Mm-hmm. We've had a, we've had quite a few women join the business that, you know, are in their 20s, late 20s, and so many of them have said to me, you know, I just never even thought about doing this out of school. I never knew it was even an option. Yeah. But yeah. but now I'm like, right, I'm going to do it. Um, and they love it. They absolutely love it. So, mm. yeah, a lot of it is just getting that message out there. Fantastic. And one of the things that um, happens a bit in organisations that are seeking to shift the, the sort of the gender parity, particularly at entry point, is that you might get a nice cohort of uh, women coming in, but it can be quite hard to retain. And often that's because you don't have that sense of parity. I mean, I think there's a big difference, you know. Uh, I'm in a group where I look like the rest of the group. The group is kind of well-balanced. So it's more comforting, more comfortable to be a part of that than to be, um, you know, a part of a minority where there's a lot of emphasis on uh, what you do, but you're going into a male-dominated context where it can be a bit trickier. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea of parity right from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, they are spread out right across the business, so there is absolutely times where uh, they could be the only one in their area. Um, but having said that, though, there's a lot of support from a lot of different people as they go through yeah. uh, and also not even just within sort of the, the future skills team, just the work that's being done around um, supporting teams in general and what mm. they can access and how they can access yeah. it. Uh, and, yeah, and and there's a lot of external groups now that are set up to support as well, mm-hmm. um, which is really great. So there's people they can reach out to and have a chat to or whatever if they're yeah. if they've got some stuff going on so I think in general especially from when I went through my apprenticeship 
the that support and that connection to people is is far superior today than it was back then. Mm, fantastic. So you've done a lot of work around diversity and inclusion and shifting the dial and achieving some fantastic outcomes. Um, what do you think we need to do around helping leaders in general change their mindsets um, and and take greater responsibility for DNI so it doesn't come down to people like you all the time, even if you've got you know the passion for it? How how do you do that? How do you get that sharing of responsibility? It's an interesting one um, because I think it's actually getting the leaders to value what it can bring to them as a leader and also to their teams. Uh, It is tricky in a production-driven environment where you are faced with, you know, the day-to-day of of maintaining assets, production, you know, uh, meeting targets, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, So it's easy to put this sort of stuff aside. Um, So I think it's about, like I said, the value because it's well-researched and well-known that, if you have diversity within your teams and a sense of inclusion and stuff, you get more productive teams, you get better outputs, better safety outcomes. Uh, so, you know, really trying to get leaders to, to recognise that and to come on that journey mm. so that they can see the benefit. And mm. then it becomes more of a habit too. Like they know that, okay, if they're doing a recruiting or whatever, I always challenge recruiters and leaders about, what are you at what are you actually after like what do you mm. actually want in this team mm. um what are the skill sets that you're looking for not you know has a person got a degree in this or are they experienced yeah. in this mm. what are the actual skill sets you're after in a person uh and and have a look at your team and where you know where there might there be some gaps in some areas that you know you might need someone who's uh, a bit more empathetic or you might need someone who's got a much greater attention to detail or you might need someone who, you know, um, can work on a specific task really well. Or So I challenge because, and it is changing, I rarely see ads anymore that say requires 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. business yeah. experience, yada, yada. Um and we've gone as well from having, you know, must have something or other degree to desirable. But yeah, it's about what do you what do you actually want? Like mm-hmm. you should know your team, the dynamic of the team, the makeup of your team. So what what are you what what are you trying to feel? How you yeah. how are you trying to feel it? Will this person fit in your team? Do you need another person that looks exactly like the three other people you have in your team? <laughs> Yes, I mean, fit is one of those things that's a red flag for me. But I think one of, you know, I, I'm really heartened to hear that, that focus on what are the skills and capabilities we actually need. And in one sense, that sounds really sort of obvious, but I think it's actually hard. It's harder than it seems to be to be clear about these are the capabilities we need, but also in the recruitment process to assess them. Now, in, in your neck of the woods, it actually might be a bit easier for some things. You can practically see whether someone can do this thing. In some areas that are a bit more conceptual, it can be more difficult. But I think that in the recruitment process, taking the time to assess people's skills and capabilities, once you've been clear about what they are, 
it's just time consuming for busy leaders, but it's the thing that makes the difference. And and how you can identify has this person got some talent? Well, yes, we can tell they have or haven't, whether they look like me or don't. It's um interviews are interesting in the fact that interviews yeah. never really get to the to the cruts of of a person because everyone's either nervous or on their best behavior or you know and we don't necessarily ask about people's values and uh, we do and we don't like it's you know people can practice answers and it's very hard in say half an hour to understand how a person Mm. ticks so Mm. I, I prefer assessment centers but we don't tend to do them for professional roles either so it's yeah there's definitely challenges in the recruiting Mm. space that Mm. need to be worked through on how better we can assess people into the business yeah yeah agree and I think assessment centers have a great uh, a much better track record anyway than interviews do we know we've known for 30, 40 years that interviews are actually really bad at predicting success and performance on the job and yet we still rely on them and, you know, anyway, that's that's one. Neither you nor I are going to fix that one in this conversation, <laughs> but I'm really absolutely to hear that focus on let's get to the skills and capabilities that we really need in this job and then try at least do our best to, to kind of assess against those and, and stop worrying about fit because that tends to mean do you look and sound like me? Well, like everyone me. wants to hire themselves, right? Everyone, it's easier if you if you hire someone that looks like you, behaves like you, thinks like yeah. you. It's easier. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I guess that the going along with what you said, it's really important for people to be able to see the benefit of a diversity because I think it does actually require more for managers, leaders, to lead a team of people who are different. Um, not that leading a, a, a team of people who are all the same necessarily means you get the best out of them either because they look the same. You forget about the fact that they think differently, and they do. But, so you don't extract the value that might or some of the value that might be there. But um, I'm interested in understanding what the organisation is doing to help leaders, prepare leaders to deal with diversity to manage diversity, to get the most out of it. Yeah, look, there's absolutely much more focus on that nowadays. Um, uh, There's there's training courses that they're doing. I think there's more support and understanding from HR in and around those challenges. Uh, So it's definitely, there's definitely resources available to leaders that weren't there previously, um, Mm. which is great. Um, And I think a lot of it, is self-reflection of leaders as well and and mm-hmm. and leaders are being asked to do that for them to yeah. really reflect on what their leadership style is and how they value mm. um our our core principles um at work etc uh but i think as a society we're being challenged as well um mm. which is a really good thing because then it should roll into the way we work and how we treat people so i think the dial is moving ever so slowly, but it's absolutely going in the right direction. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So all leaders are really busy. So being able to make the case about what's the value I get from this, how's it going to help me do what I need to do, and that support is really critical. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So finally, I'm interested in um, your thoughts on what, you know, um, women in male-dominated organisations uh, can learn or, or how they need to think about um, engaging productively. It's it's definitely uh, evolved over the years in that regard. I remember back in the day, if you were a woman ent- entering the industry, you had to have a thick skin, be able mm. to take a joke, uh, you know, really become one of the boys to fit in and to, you yeah. know, not cause, not cause ruffles, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, I think women... I think you absolutely need to know the environment you're getting into, but it's more about the work that you'll be carrying out. If you are choosing to do a trade or something along those lines, it is going to be hot. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be long days. So it's less about having to have a thick skin, but more about are you up for the challenge of the actual role, regardless of whether you're male, female or otherwise. So, and I think... Uh, as much as the women can to bring them their whole selves to work. Um, you know, they've got a lot to offer. Um, and I think so being, I don't like saying being confident because I think confidence comes from a good environment rather than you just mm. having to be, be confident. Uh, so, but I think as much as you can, definitely get a support network around you. Um, some people that you can talk through challenges with uh, and and get to know the companies that you're going into as well. What sort mm. of culture does that company have? Will you be supported? Because there's definitely still companies out there that, that aren't where we would like them to be. Mm. Uh, and if you haven't had experience in that before, it's not going to be nice when you get there. So, yeah, it's it, yeah. Like an old duck like me could probably deal with it and have a few choice words, but that's not what something should, someone should have to do. So, yeah. Mm. But challenge, challenge people, challenge people that are hiring you, challenge leaders, challenge people on what are their values, what's the culture, what am I, what mm. am I getting myself into? Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, you can't know what you can't know. If you haven't experienced something, it's a bit hard to kind of project yourself into that and understand that so obviously the way people are being trained or educated makes a a really um, big difference so how would people know how to challenge the system or what kind of questions or you know what what do they need to do and it would be good Donna we were both agreed on this I'm sure that such a thing would not have to happen but given that perhaps you still do need to do that, how how do you figure it figure it out? I think sometimes even uh, like a simple question in an interview. So say you're being interviewed by someone who is your potential leader or uh, a HR individual, you can ask the leader what sort of leadership style they have. Yeah. Uh, how they answer can be very indicative to the to what you'll come up against, and you'll be able to tell if someone's being genuine or not. Mm. Uh, you can, and that means I think also trusting your gut. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So trusting your instincts when people respond. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, and also even challenge HR and say, can you describe the culture that you see within this organisation? Um, and again, you'll know if they aren't comfortable with giving the answer. Um, and also the culture might be okay, just not might not be to your suiting. suiting. I did it. Yeah. I did, uh, I had a chat with a, a recruiter once that said, you know, uh, this organisation isn't very rigid. There's quite, it's quite flexible. It's quite um, agile and stuff. But if you're used to processes and procedures yeah. and mm. things like that, you, it might not work for you. And I thought that was actually really great because, mm. yeah, there is absolutely people that love to be able to, be flex and be agile with everything and other people that need to know that there's a policy, a procedure, a process yeah. around things. So yeah. I think even asking that sort of question will really help you with what you might be heading into. Yeah. And I like what you talked about earlier on. You mentioned that you went out, you've got as much work experience as you possibly could. I, there's no substitute for that, is there? And it, you don't necessarily have to spend a lot of time and do a lot of work. Um, in that but getting out to sites seeing what it's like gives you a really good understanding of what you might expect absolutely and even and that's where those support organizations come in as well tap into different organizations that have industry contacts and go to networking events and you know there's a lot around Australia now with tradeswomen Australia there's NAWO there's WIMWA there's a lot so many um, mm. And if you can can connect into those, and even like there's industry professional ones, there's the young engineers, there's so many. Um, yeah. If you can ho- hook into them and make relationships and contacts within those, mm. there'll be a myriad of different people working for a myriad of different organisations and mm. they will generally give you the candid answer on what their organisation is like what the pros and cons are, what they love about it, what they don't like about it. Uh, Absolutely get out and build relationships with different people Mm. and find out that information. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like great great ideas, a great way to do the homework as well as get support later from those organisations and that network that you're talking about. Mm. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been great to get to know a bit more about your career and how it started and how you got into the leadership roles and also the outstanding work that you've done there, particularly in Women in Rail. That I mean, it's very exciting and it's great to hear about such success stories. Is there anything I haven't given you a chance to say that you would like to say in our conversation? I was just going to say I end up winning an award too for all of that work. Oh, so. <laughs> brilliant. What was the award? Um, I won the Outstanding Tradeswoman Award for the Women and Resources Awards. I won the state and national awards for that. Oh, congratulations. Outstanding. Thank you. <laughs> well done. What a fantastic note um, to finish up our conversation with um, a real success story and it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you, Karen. Thanks.